Well, good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to be with, well, to be home with our church family. Um, that's how we really truly feel about it. Um, you are our church family, and this is home. Uh, this is home. So uh, excited to be here with you. Um, I was bummed last week that you weren't able to gather together and hear uh, Paul Funches preach, but he'll still be down on March 7th, and you'll be blessed by that. Um, but uh, thankful for those of you who are able to stream in to the service in Spokane last week um, and get to see some of that. So, well, let's go ahead and pray as we enter God's Word uh, this morning. Lord Christ, you are the King over all. You are the Lord of your church. Uh, you are the Lord of this church, and uh, we we come to you, and we want to listen to you from the pages of Scripture. Um, we pray that you would open our eyes and our minds, help us to understand and to live according to your, to your word. Please bless this time this morning. Grant me clarity. Um, grant us all a listening ear and, and a heart to obey. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, um, I don't know if you've heard, we probably have heard by now, we will be starting the, the book of Matthew as our next uh, expository series, walking through the gospel of Matthew, seeing Jesus, uh, learning what does it mean to be a disciple and to follow him. Uh, we'll probably start that after Easter uh, at this point, that's the plan. So we've got some time in between, uh, and I thought it would be good just to, uh, to go over uh, and refresh on a few uh, basics, a few foundational things. Uh, I don't know about you, but I often find myself uh, walking through life, and I always need to remind myself. I have a leaky bucket brain. I have a leaky bucket brain, and so I always need to remind myself, what are the, what are the main things? What are the foundational things? What are uh, the priorities as I am a Christian and I'm following Christ? And so that leads us to talking about the church, uh, and really the title of today is a question, what is the church? I don't know if you've thought about that much, uh, but what is the church? We could even frame it this way in docking with our, our study through Philippians, right? With Philippians, the main theme was a partnership in the proclamation of Christ. Well, really the church uh, is a manifestation of that partnership. So what does it look like to function together as the church, as partners in the proclamation of Christ? And really why we want to talk about what is the church, you guys are familiar with that, you know, you know what the church is, you've heard about the church, you, you're part of the church, you're committed to the church, that's why you're here, you love the church, that's why you show up. We felt that, that love of, of, of you all for the church, uh, but it's helpful to remember who are we, what is our identity as the church? You see, if you understand who you are, right, you understand your identity uh, that helps you to live up to your identity. It's, it's uh, like being in, uh, 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 tr when we trust Christ and we know that our identity uh, is those who have been bought by Christ, who are in union with Christ, whom he saved and redeemed, uh, that identity helps us to walk. Well, at a corporate level, that's at an individual level, but at a corporate level, who are we as the church and who, how do we live up to that identity. And really, I truly believe this is a fruitful time to talk about this because of the pandemic, because of the pandemic. You see, over the last year, we've been going through this pandemic, and a large part of this, there's been government regulations on the church and what we can do and what we can't do, and that's got, had me thinking, and it's had a lot of you thinking, well, okay, what, what is the church? What, uh, what role do we have? How does it all interrelate? And really, I would say that the pandemic has sharpened that need for us to understand our identity as the church and to revisit that. So my goal this morning is for you uh, to understand what is the church, its significance in God's redemptive plan, and then some implications for how you ought to view and interact with the local church, our local church, Faith Bible Church. Really, I want you to, uh, going through this, I want you to love this local assembly and feel the joyful responsibility of your place in it. And you do. You do exhibit this. Uh, we're just so thankful. Ashley and I are so thankful to see your love for this body 
and your joy in coming together and ministering together. But really just want to revisit that this morning, understanding what the church is, its significance in God's redemptive plan, and some implications of how we ought to live and interact together as the local church. Um, so this, this won't be walking through a single text. This will be walking through multiple texts. And there's, there's a lot to say. Uh, we might not get through everything today, uh, but that's okay. I'll be back next week, and we can finish it off if we, if we need to. But uh, what we're going to do and launch from, let's go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 and verse 13, a familiar passage to you probably. But I want to launch from there as we discuss what is the church. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So I'm going to use this text to kind of launch us this morning, and where we're going to go is we're going to talk actually first uh, about the beginning of the church. Uh, when did the church begin, the beginning of the church? We're going to talk about the definition of the church, so we ultimately want to understand what is the church, but we're going to talk about when did it begin first, that'll help us. And then we'll talk about implications for the church. So beginning of the church, definition of the church, implications for the church. And like I said, it is easier to think about, uh, to start with when did the church begin and then to move to what it is. So that's, that's the movement we're going with. So let's talk about when the church began. Well, I would redirect your attention to Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, after Peter has confessed him to be the Christ, notice what uh, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Which means what? It means that the church at this point in history, when Jesus utters these words, has not yet begun. He has not yet begun building his church. So it's future. So, okay, that asks, we ask the question, all right, so it hasn't started yet in the Gospels. It hasn't started yet with Jesus and his disciples, uh, at least as when uh, Jesus has uttered these words. So when has it begun? Well, for that, I would direct your attention to Acts, uh, and I would argue to you that uh, it's the day of Pentecost. It's the day of Pentecost uh, when the church begins. But let me prove that for you. Uh, look at Acts 1. Verse 4. Like I said, we're going to be bouncing around to a lot of passages. Uh, you can do one of two things. You can either flip there with me uh, to the ones that we, we read together, or you can just listen and, and uh, write out in the reference and go back there later if you wish. So Acts 1.4. So Jesus is resurrected. He's, uh, he hasn't ascended yet, but he's been resurrected. And he says this, And while staying with them, that's the disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard, me, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is saying, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit soon. Um, and we know that that happens in the next chapter on the day of Pentecost. You see, there's this language in uh, the book of Acts of baptism by the Spirit, and then this language of filling. Filling's a thing that can happen over and over again for empowerment for ministry, but the idea of baptism by the Spirit is it hasn't happened yet, and he's predicting when it will happen, and we know that that happens at Pentecost. Now, what's the significance of that for the church? Well, then I would direct your attention to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12 
Paul's talking about spiritual gifts in general, uh, but 1 Corinthians 12, 12, this is the key part I want to draw your attention to, and we'll pull these things together. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So that, what Paul is saying there is saying anyone that's, that's baptized into the body, and he's speaking of the church, he's using that metaphor of Christ's body as the church, and he's saying anyone that's in the church has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. So tying Acts 1 and this together, what's the implication? The implication is if, uh, if uh, all who are in the church are those who have been baptized by the Spirit into that church, into that universal church together... And since baptism by the Spirit did not come until Pentecost, it follows that the church did not exist until Pentecost, right? Because Pentecost is when baptism by the Spirit uh, occurred. Implication number two, the church is distinct from Israel. The church is distinct from Israel because if the church didn't begin until Pentecost, well, Israel's existed for generations uh, prior to this, the Old, Old Testament is following and tracing Israel, and even through the Gospels, we're dealing with Israel a lot. The church is a distinct entity from Israel. This does not mean, so don't mishear me, this does not mean that there were not Old Testament saints who were saved by grace through faith. Uh, the Gospel is always by grace through faith, entrusting oneself to God and His promises, and ultimately accomplished through His Messiah. So I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that the coming of the Spirit in an indwelling way is different than his operation in the Old Testament saints and community, making the church distinct from Israel. And we're not going to dwell on that a ton this morning, but I do want to mention that. I do want to mention that. And it also means this, the distinction between Israel and the church does not mean there is no relationship between the two. In fact, there's a very intimate relationship between the two, but as far as they're concerned, there's still distinct identities. One is national and one is international, as we'll talk about and see. So that's, that's, that's what we talk about the beginning of the church. The church began at Pentecost because that's when the Spirit Came. That's when baptism by the Spirit came and indwelled individuals and indwelled the community of believers that, that Jesus had bought. So let's move on then next to the definition of the church. So now we know when the church began, and that helps us understand a little bit better of, okay, so if that's when the church began, what is it? What is the church? What is it? And here I want to draw your, a distinction for you between description and definition. Description and definition. You see, we can describe things. Uh, I could describe a human being, right? I can describe, well, a human, a human being is a mammal. They're, they're, um, they're uh, you know, omnivorous. We can have vegetarian, they can eat meat. Or, but, you know, I, that's description, though, right? But definition, definition gets at the essence, the core of what something is. What something is. So the church is often described in a number of different metaphors and language. The bride of Christ, the body of Christ, uh, the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. But what's, what is the, at the core, what is the church? Well, here's where I would jump back to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Let's go back to Matthew 16, 18. Again, uh, Peter's just confessed Jesus to be the Christ. And yet I want to delve a little bit deeper into Matthew 16, 18, because I believe this gives uh, Jesus understanding uh, of what the church is. And I tell you, Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, okay, let's, let's pause there for a second. Um, Jesus is making a word play here. You may have heard this before, but the word Peter is actually, it's a nickname. Uh, P Peter's uh, name is Simon, right? Simon, son of Jonah. That's his name, right? Uh, so Peter is a nickname, and it's a nickname that, Je uh, that Jesus himself had given Peter. If you were to look at that, you would uh, go over to John 1.42, and he talks about Peter's name is Cephas. Cephas is just the Aramaic form of, the, uh, of, 
the, the nickname it, uh, uh, of Peter. And Peter is a Greek word, a petros, it means rock or stone, right? So he's drawing a, a, he's drawing a play on words here. He's, he's saying, all right, you're a stone, you're a stone, and on this rock now, uh, in English, is kind of masked because it's a different word. It's related. So the word for Peter is Petros. The word for rock is Petra. So you can hear that even in that you don't know Greek. You don't need to know Greek, right? But you can hear there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a connection there, a pun, a pun on Peter's name. The distinction is these terms overlap. The two terms that uh, Jesus is using, they overlap. But if there is a distinction to be made, and I think there is one here, uh, that P- Petros is an individual stone, whereas Petra is a massive stone. In fact, you see it earlier in the book of Matthew, Matthew 7, it talks about on uh, those who hear these words of mine and build their house on this rock. It's the word Petra. It's a massive stone. It's a foundation, right? Well, there's a distinction between a massive stone as a foundation and an individual stone that makes up that foundation, isn't there? And that's the distinction that Jesus is making here, Peter is an individual stone of a part of foundation, okay? So Jesus is describing, he is describing his church, but I think he's also helping us understand the definition of the church, because what he just said is, here's, there's a, the church is, he's describing the church in architectural terms, and yet the, the members of that architecture are people. The members of that architecture are people. We've seen Peter is an individual within this structure, and by extension, the whole structure, if you've got a building and the foundation is made up of people, uh, then the whole structure must also be built up of people, which is exactly what the word church means. The word, the word is ecclesia, and it just means assembly, an assembly of people. So they would, you see this in Acts, right, where maybe in Ephesus, the people are mad at Paul, and they, the assembly comes in together uh, to... to, to uh, try to, to, to persecute the Christians, but that's the idea of assembly. It's a group of people. So the church is a group of people, but it's a group of people in architectural organization, in an architectural organization. It's like, what in the world are we talking about? Well, this is where the Old Testament helps us a bunch. This is where the Old Testament helps us a bunch. So we got a group of people, the church, an architectural organization. What's that all about? Well, we don't have time to go there right now, but I, uh, go ahead and write this reference down. Uh, we can, we'll probably read it sometime later together as a church, but uh, 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, and you could focus in on verses 4 through 16. I'll just give you the overview. Very, very, very important chapter in your Bibles, 2 Samuel 7, because what 2 Samuel 7 is all about, and I'll connect this with what Jesus is doing in Matthew 16, 2 Samuel 7 is what we call the Davidic Covenant the Davidic covenant. God's plan has always been for a king uh, ruling a kingdom of his people. And what 2 Samuel 7 talks about, David is at rest. He's, he's king over all Israel, and he desires to build a house. He desires to build God a temple. He desires to build God a temple. And God says through the prophet Nathan, Uh, that's a good idea, but you're not going to be the guy to do it. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to establish your house, another play on words. God does another play on words. He's saying, all right, you wanted to build me a house. I'm going to establish your house, meaning your dynasty, such that you're never going to lack a man to be on the throne. And yet you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son who's going to build my house. You're going to have a son who's going to be a temple builder. You're going to have a son who's a temple builder. Now, we know, as the story unfolds, that Solomon builds uh, the temple, uh, and, and it's grand, and it's awesome, and yet we know because Israel was disobedient and their kings were disobedient, uh, the temple and the nation were destroyed. They were exiled. And after that time, Israel is still looking forward to uh, their king, but also together with the king goes the temple building. And that's the background to what is going on in the Gospels and specifically Matthew 16. When Jesus talks about, I'm going to build my church, this assembly of people, an architectural organization, what he's fundamentally talking about is that he's going to build his temple. He's going to build his temple. And just to, to, the rest of the New Testament corroborates 
this idea. Um, let's go ahead and turn over to Acts 4. I love hearing the swishing of pages. Because what that means is you're committed to seeing the authority rooted in the scriptures and not in a man. Um, Acts 4.11 um, Acts 4.11, this is um, uh, one of the, after one of the healings Peter and John has, have done, and they get arrested, and they're, they're addressing themselves to the leaders in Jerusalem, the, the religious leaders, and they say this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And if you remember in the Gospels, Jesus applied that same language to himself. That's a, that's a quote from Psalm 118. There's, there's language in the Old Testament that talks of the Messiah as a cornerstone of the structure of a new temple being built. And they're affirming that here. The, uh, Jesus affirmed that about himself. The apostles are affirming it here. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name uh, uh, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if we go through the rest of the New Testament, we see this metaphor. It's not just a one-time metaphor. It's used again and again and again in such a foundational way that I believe that this metaphor for the church is, is helping us define, actually, in, in essence, what the church is. So let me take you to another couple places. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Probably a familiar passage to you as well. 1 Corinthians, he's addressing the Corinthians, and they've got all sorts of rampant immorality in the church. Uh, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So there, there, uh, uh, Paul is talking about the individual believer as a temple, the individual believer as a temple, and then, we, but it's not just that, right? So there's the individual believer as a temple, but then there's a corporate reality to that as well. First, flip back in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 3.10, and Paul here is talking about his ministry among the Corinthians, among a local church, and he says this, 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let's each, uh, let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's using that same metaphor, right? Christ is the cornerstone. He's part of that whole foundation. He's the cornerstone, orients the whole structure. It's the most important part. It's the most foundational, foundational part, orienting everything. And he goes on, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He's talking about believers coming in, being built. Remember, the idea is uh, that there's individuals, there's people in architectural organization. Well, he's saying uh, your work as a believer and drawing people in uh, that, uh, that, that's the idea of building this temple, more people being added, more people being saved and brought into it. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now catch this, verse 16. Do you not know that you, and the you there is plural, uh, we don't distinguish in English between singular you and plural you, but uh, Greek does. And this is a plural you. You, you all. You all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And this is, so you've got the layer of the individual being a temple. You've got the layer of the local church. He's talking about a local church right now being the temple and then you've got the layer of the universal church. Every believer that's believed since uh, the Pentecost being put into this church. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Paul would have gone over this if you'd been here last week. But this is sweet. 
Uh, and Ephesians, Ephesians as a whole is very concerned with the temple. We'll talk more about that later, but let me draw your attention uh, to Ephesians 2.19. He's talking to Gentiles, and he's saying, uh, you, had, uh, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, um, and yet now there's, you've been brought near by Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And in context, you can see this in Ephesians 3, the prophets he's speaking about are New Testament prophets. Talk about that more later. But, um, and then it says this, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, same imagery, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The same imagery, right? The church, and this is where we come to our definition. We come to our definition. I put this in your bulletin because I'm long-winded when it comes to definitions. So I'll read you the long definition and then I'll give you the short definition. But what is the church? After what we've seen, we can say this. The church is the temple of God i.e., the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth in this era, begun by Christ on the day of Pentecost, founded on himself as the cornerstone and his apostles and New Testament prophets, and consisting of all true believers, Jew and Gentile, in union with Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who function as priests, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that's a lot, and there's a lot in there, right? Boil it down. The church is the temple in this era. The church is the temple in this era. And we see that it's not just a one-time metaphor. It is foundational to how the Jesus and the apostles and prophets thought about the church. And the church, it's, it's people and architectural organization. It's not a building. It's not this building. It's not that. That's not the temple. You're the temple, right? The people, the people are the temple built on salvation in Christ and the teaching of the apostles and New Testament prophets. That is uh, what the temple is in this era. Now, you might be saying, okay, great. That's, that's great. The church is the temple. No, no, no. This is, this is, this is amazing. This is amazing because there's always been a temple. This is, uh, what I want to do now, we've kind of defined what the church is, but as an offshoot of that, I want to walk you very briefly from Genesis to Revelation, and I want you to see how central the temple is to God's plan and program. So, what is the temple in the Bible all about? And the reason I'm doing this, the reason I'm doing this, we know the church is the temple now, but I want you to feel the freight. I want you to feel the weight of that significance of us being God's temple. So that's why I'm walking you through this. What is the temple in the Bible all about? I said it earlier, but in my definition, but it's about the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. It's about the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. Now, we know God is not spatially contained, right? That he fills heaven and earth. God is omnipresent. He, is, he exists everywhere at every point of space with his whole being. And yet, he does manifest his presence differently in different places. He does manifest his presence differently in different places. And that's the idea of the temple, where God is concentrating his presence in a special way to bless and to dwell with his people. And the foundation of this is really, uh, ultimately, uh, in heaven. There's a reality where there is a heavenly temple. Uh, The way I could uh, show you this, we won't go through all these passages, but just to reference them, there is, there is a, when they make the tabernacle in the Old Testament, when they make the temple, it's always a pattern uh, a plan, the blueprints are revealed from heaven. Hebrews, in Hebrews 8.5, talks about how all the earthly manifestations of the temple are a pointer and a model to a heavenly reality. 
You see, that's the sanctuary. The heavenly sanctuary is where Christ has made atonement as high priest and where he is currently and actively in session as high priest in the heavenly temple. You get a glimpse of this heavenly temple in Revelation 4 through 5. This this grand throne room scene, well, really, that's a depiction of the heavenly reality of the temple. And everything else that happens on earth is a model, a depiction, a pointer to that reality. So you ask yourself the question, where was the first created temple? Where was the first temple on earth? It was the Garden of Eden. It was the Garden of Eden. How do I know that? How do I know that that was what was going on? Well, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, uh, mankind is defined fundamentally as the image of God. The idea of the image of God was to be a representative to all the world. And, and in that culture and time, the image of the God would be placed in the temple, right? And Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden. More than that, in Genesis 2.15, Adam is commissioned to guard and keep the temple. That language of guard and keep is used of the later priests, the, the, the Levites, in keeping the temple, and more than that, we could go into more details, but one more thing I would say, Eden was, uh, the Garden of Eden was on top of a mountain. It was on top of a mountain. Rivers flowed out of Eden to water the world, and the temple was put on a mountain. And what you see through the biblical record is that God's temple is often put on a mountaintop. And so there's this, this idea that Eden is the foundational temple. And if you remember, that's where man had that, that close fellowship with God. Right? They walked with God. They communed with God. They saw his beauty. They had that relationship, the concentrated manifestation of God's presence with his people dwelling with them. But then we know the fall happens, right? And what happens? Exile. Exile out of the Garden of Eden. And what's placed in the Garden of Eden to guard, guard the way back to Eden? What is it? Cherubim, right? The cherubim, they're guarding the way back to Eden. And you will see that later in temple imagery. Let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, God calls Israel out of uh, Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai. So you got this mountain, right? You got this big old mountain. And that whole episode at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, it's set in the context of Israel becoming a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But God's presence, the manifestation of God's presence now is very different, isn't it? It's not a cool, lush garden. It's in a desert, and God's presence descends on this mountain in flame and in fire and smoke. It's like everyone's afraid, right? This thing's going to explode. We better get out of here, right? There's a loud trumpet. It's, it's scary. Why is that? Because of sin. Because of sin, right? There is exile. There is there's distance. There is distance from God. We can't get near God. We can't get near his manifestation of his presence because it'll kill us. It'll kill us. I, I like to think of it like this, a nuclear reactor. You don't dare go into an unshielded nuclear reactor. It will kill you. It is extremely dangerous. That's the idea of approaching God's presence. And it, you need to be holy in order to approach God. And mankind isn't because of its sin. And that's why there's a mediator in the form of Moses at Mount Sinai, Right? And there's, there's an altar. So, so there's kind of a temple scene at Sinai. And then what happens with the building of the tabernacle is Sinai goes mobile. Sinai goes mobile. They build the, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be the center of the camp of Israel. And even within the tabernacle, there's layers, right? You can come this far, uh, and then you can come this far, but the Holy of Holies, only the priest once a year. What does that remind you? It reminds you of going up a mountain, doesn't it, Right? Because in the Holy of Holies is God's most concentrated manifestation of his presence on earth. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement could the priest enter that sanctuary with the proper sacrifices. And it had to happen over and over and over and over again. And you remember at the end of Exodus what happens when they build the tabernacle. The, the cloud of God's presence enters, right? It enters into that that tabernacle. Fast forward a little bit. We have Solomon building his temple, right? Tied to the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. Uh, and, and we know, we already talked about this, that the ultimate Messiah is the ultimate temple builder. But what's interesting is in both the tabernacle and the temple, what do you see in it? What imagery? This is where all those boring chapters in your Bible reading, it's like, 
why, why do I need to know about the pegs in the temple? Or why do I need to know about the construction? This is where it counts because if you notice, there's pomegranate trees, there's some cherubim on a veil getting into the temple. What's that remind you of? Eden. Eden. It, we're going back to Eden, right? We're trying to go back to Eden. We're trying to draw near to that concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. And that's what happens in Solomon's temple. And, and really, if you look at Solomon's reign with this great king reigning over all, and then you've got the nations flowing to this mountain, right? The, the, the temple is set on Mount Zion, right? It's on this mountain. The people are supposed to be flowing to it. And, and, and Solomon's reign is described in Edenic conditions because all of redemptive history is aimed at getting back to Eden, but better. Then what happens? The kings fail. Israel fails. Uh, Ezekiel, you see this imagery of the temple and God's presence leaves the temple, right? The cloud entered into Solomon's temple, but then the idea is in Ezekiel, God's presence leaving. We're back to exile again, right? Back, uh, that idea of God's presence leaving his people uh, because of their sin. But then there's a vision at the end of Ezekiel in 40 through 48, again, thrilling Bible study reading, or at least we, it ought to be, but we're like, what is this all about? But, but it's about God building, he's promising, yeah, I'm going to build the ultimate temple where my presence is going to dwell, where you're going to be able to dwell with me. And then after the exile, they come back, they build this temple, but it's like a mere shadow of what Solomon's temple was going to be, and yet God still promises there will be a future, there will be a future temple where God is dwelling with his people. Malachi, we see at the end of the Old Testament, the priesthood and the temple system is already corrupt, and that leads us right into the New Testament, which is what we see in the Gospels, right? The temple system is corrupt. It's become a, a money changer's market. If you listen to my sermon last week, uh, it's that, that issue, right? They want control over the temple, the center, the core of Israel's life. So where's the temple? Well, what's interesting is when Jesus steps onto the scene, he is the temple, John 2. Let me take you to John 2. Don't worry, we're coming back around to the church. John 2 and verse 13. Catch this. This is wonderful. John 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who, uh, those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do, you not do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what is the most concentrated manifestation of God's presence you can have? God the Son taking on human flesh as his temple, and his, the, the presence, that, that's, that, that's the temple, right? The incarnation is Jesus, clothing himself, the Son of God clothing himself with flesh, and dwelling among a sinful people. He is the temple while he is on earth. And yet, even in his earthly ministry, flip over a page to John 4, talking with the woman at the well, you get into this dispute about worship. John 4, 19, a um, woman says to him, this is the woman at the well he's talking with, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for, God is for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. 
And so Jesus is predicting here, and he's going to confess that he's the Messiah here really briefly, but no longer is the temple going to be centralized in Jerusalem. It's now going to be distributed. It's now going to be distributed. And that's exactly what happens when Jesus ascends into heaven and sends the Spirit. What happens? The Spirit comes into individuals and to the corporate like the tabernacle, like the temple, right? That cloud of God's presence coming, that spirit indwelling individuals and the corporate, the church is now the temple of God. The church is now the temple of God in this era, in this era. And then you see that even to Revelation, right? You see that throughout the epistles, but even in Revelation. In Revelation uh, chapters 2 through 3, you've got the seven churches, and you've got this imagery of Jesus walking among the seven golden lampstands. That's temple imagery, right? Because the lampstand was in the temple, right? And it goes on to describe those lampstands are the churches. So you've got Jesus, the high priest, in the heavenly sanctuary, walking in and among his churches, And then he addresses these letters to these churches as the high priest and says, well, here's where you're doing good. Here's where you're doing bad. Here's what you need to do. That's Jesus in his role as high priest. Revelation 20 talks about Jesus coming and instituting his millennial reign. And we would expect during that time that Ezekiel's physical temple described in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is going to come about. But then here's here's the ultimate payoff in the new heavens and the new earth after the millennium. Where's the temple? Turn to the end of your Bibles, Revelation 21. I've read this before, but it's, this is our future, so it's so, so encouraging to read. Revelation uh, 21, starting in verse 22. He says this, And I saw no temple, in the city, the new Jerusalem that's come down from heaven. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. There's still nations in the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't that amazing? But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who's, who uh, does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the street, the tree of life. Where was the tree of life originally? Eden, now we're back, and even better than Eden, it's Eden plus, right? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants, that's us, will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads in the night and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the temple in Scripture. So now do you feel some of the freight of what it means for us as a local body to be the temple of God? It's not just the individual. It is that, but it's, it's, there's layers, right? There's the individual and there's the corporate. The corporate manifestation of the local manifestation of God's presence on earth, that concentrated manifestation happens in the local church. Now, that leads me to our third kind of section this morning, which is implications for the church. Implications for the church. Okay, this is kind of a lerman at this point, right? A mixture between a, a lecture and a sermon a little bit, but... but um, I stole that from someone else, so it's not, it's not my, my term. But um, what are the implications? We've got all of this, this info, but what do we do with it? What does it mean? What, should we, what, what are the implications for our lives? Well, and I think this is the only implication we'll get to today, but it's so, so, so important. It is the responsibility of the local church to manifest God's presence together to manifest God's presence together. Now, you might ask me, well, what does that mean? Let me take you back to Ephesians. 
Ephesians. And we've already seen that Paul in Ephesians 2 has the temple on his mind, and he has it on his mind throughout the book of Ephesians. One way you can see that is this language of, I don't know if you've ever read through Ephesians, maybe you read through the whole thing when preparing for Paul's message, or even just chapters 1 through 3, you see this language of filling, right? Be filled with the Spirit, fill, be the fullness, that you've got all this language of filling, right? I believe that Paul is, is thinking of God's presence in a filling sort of way. Ephesians 1.23, the church is described as Christ's body, the fullness of the one filling for himself all things and all things. The church is supposed to be the full manifestation of Christ's presence on earth. In his absence, the body is supposed to manifest his, his, his presence. In 3.19, Ephesians 3.19, Paul ends a request for the Ephesian church so they might be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, the prayers so that the church might manifest God's fullness, his presence on earth. God's full earthly presence is manifested in his temple. It makes sense, right? Ephesians 4.10, Jesus is said to have ascended to the heavens to fill all things. And in context, Paul is speaking about Jesus filling the church as his body with, with the, 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 the gifts of the Spirit so the body can, can build itself up in love. Now, Ephesians 5.18 Familiar, familiar passage. This is the last use of fill in the book of Ephesians, and it's this. Do not get drunk by means of wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled by means of the Spirit. How do you do that? What does that look like? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Friends, this is not an individual command. In fact, the grammar supports it because here the, everything's plural. He's talking to the local church and he's saying, all of you be filled by means of the Spirit. How do you do that, Paul? How do we be filled by means of the Spirit? Singing. <laughs> addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They didn't have, everyone didn't have a Bible, right? So you, how do you incorporate truth? You put it into hymns, into songs, so that you can sing. They're more memorable. You can speak that truth to one another. What else does being filled by the Spirit looks like? It looks like, uh, it looks like singing with your heart to the Lord. What we just did this morning, that is significant. It is significant to come together and sing with our hearts to the Lord. It looks like giving thanks for all things in the name of Christ to God the Father. And it looks like this. It looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, you can't do a one another command by yourself. You can't do a one another command by yourself. The idea is, remember what the, what the temple in this area is. It's people, right? The temple throughout Scripture is always a beacon. It's always a beacon to, to recognize this is where God's presence dwells. So if the church, a, a bunch of people, individual stones, are make up the temple, how, how do they manifest each, uh, that they are that temple? How do they show to a watching world that they are that temple? Well, that, they come together. They gather. We often think that showing up to church is insignificant. It is one of the most significant things you can do in this age because the individual stones come together. And right now, right now, we see the boundaries of the local temple in this city because they're sitting right here in these pews, right? One of them is up here. We see each other. The temple is manifested in the gathering together. Let me take you to one other place to support this idea. 1 Corinthians 14 14, uh, 23. Listen to this. Paul's still talking about spiritual gifts, and he says this. If therefore the whole church comes together, he's speaking of the local church, and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, so there's this expectation that outsiders, unbelievers are going to see this assembly, 
and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his hearts are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, those gifts of tongues and prophecy have ceased, and yet, and yet, we are speaking the truth to one another, not just me to you, but you to each other. An unbeliever comes and sees this is supernatural, what these people are doing, gathering together people from different, uh, different communities, the Dalles and Hood River, that's, that's unusual, right? People don't do that. Uh, different, different races, different, different socioeconomic statuses, that's supernatural for people to come together and people see that the mere act of gathering together to come under God's word is significant, to sing to one another is significant because it is manifesting that temple to a watching world. And that's what I mean by understanding that the, the pandemic has pushed us to this, right? We've, I would say this, I've never until this last year understood this understanding of the church, but I'm convinced from the pages of scripture, this is what the church is. Because I can, I can watch a live stream, and I, and I did, same sermon, same songs, something's missing. What's missing? Being physically present together, manifesting the boundaries of the local temple. Here, here's the reality. You are still fed by a spirit go, uh, from home. And sometimes we have to stay home, right? Like if you're sick, I, we, you shouldn't come. Uh, it's, it's not wise. It's not good, right? But, but even in that, when you have to stay home and you have to listen to a sermon on audio or at the live stream or whatever, you're still ministered to by that sermon. Uh, you're still ministered to by the music that's sung and that yet you are missing a manifestation of the Spirit because the Spirit comes, right? Be filled by means of the Spirit. How do you do that? Singing to one another, submitting to one another, serving one another, right? So that's what we miss when we don't gather. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying there aren't times that you have to, you, you can't come, right? But that's a time of mourning, not a time of like, well, this is great. I get a kickback with my coffee and my jammies, and I'm good to go, right? Um, no, no, because that's, that's a time of mourning because we want to be with God's people. And you come to church not just for what you get. God gives, uses church as a means of grace to, to minister to us and to help us, and yet there's also responsibility. There's a responsibility because we need to come together to manifest that local temple to a watching world. And God is honored. Christ is honored when that happens. There's more that could be said as far as implications, but that is the main one that I would want to hammer home today. We'll talk about more next week, but that gathering is significant. Coming together is significant and it, it is a blessing, and it's a blessing this morning to gather with you all. I'm so thankful for you, those of you who are here and are gathering and have consistently gathered. We are just so, so thankful. Let's pray. Let's go before our high priest as we think on these truths. Lord Jesus, you are in heaven. You are in the heavenly sanctuary right now, and we are one of those lampstands. We are one of those lampstands, one of those temples, and it's a great responsibility, oh Lord God, but Lord, we long as a people together to do that. We long to honor you. We long to give you the, uh, the worth, the praise that you deserve. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this body. Thank you for these people. Thank you for these individual stones that have come together to, to, to be the local temple together. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.